Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Lots of moving pieces uh, in Ukraine. Let's get the latest. Uh, we are so fortunate to have uh, Aggie Cantrell on, on the ground, I believe, in Poland. She's a TV producer for Bloomberg News. Tell us where you are, generally speaking, what you can disclose and kind of what you're seeing on the ground here. Hi, yes. So I'm at the station in Chemischal, which is a town in southeast Poland that has received a huge amount of refugees in the last several weeks. Um, I'm at the station here where a lot of refugees are getting trained directly from Ukraine here. And also a lot of pedestrians that got went over uh, that came over the border on foot. Uh, are then taken in buses from the border itself to this town. When you talk about not only the humanitarian aspect of this, but the economic aspect as well, Aggie, how are both sides of this feeling the economic sanctions that have been put in place, given, as Paul said, I mean, we're now entering week four? Yes, so we're clearly seeing from the European side that there is some... Uh, sanction fatigue potentially from countries that are worried about the impact to their own economies of the sanctions on Russia. The sanctions seem to have significant effect on the Russian economy, but Biden, who is coming to Europe in order to push for harder-hitting sanctions against Russia, is going to have to come up against uh, a European Union that is quite split on how much they can double down on the sanctions in case it also hits parts of the European economy significantly, especially when we're looking at places like Germany, which is still so heavily dependent on Russian gas. Aggie, you're literally on the ground there um, as you see the refugees come in. How is Europe planning on dealing with what I've seen, three to four million refugees? And I, I guess that number is going to continue to grow. Is there a plan? Who's leading kind of the 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 way to to house these refugees for what might be a fairly long stay i think you're pointing at a key thing there is the question of how long this stay will be because in the short term the work has been quite efficient to manage to get people into places away from the border for the most part people are able to find accommodation uh, sort of ad hoc accommodation in other places but that's putting a lot of pressure on cities a huge amount of the refugees who arrived in poland for instance are staying in poland the unhcr sees that around 40 percent of all the refugees that came into poland are probably going to stay there and that means that there's going to be a lot of pressure on poland a country that's already reeling from the coronavirus like many countries uh, and trying to find the funding in order to secure housing and access to the labor market and also because so many of these refugees are minors many are unaccompanied minors it's also a question of how to get them into the education system mm. and so in the short term it seems to have worked but it is a question as to what this means in the long term and how that's going to look going forward and you think about aggie this is a not only a story about poland but the rest of eastern europe that response any sort of additional help they can get from more of the western european countries how is the rest of eastern europe responding uh, acting and the likes a huge amount of Eastern Europe it feels the pressure that Russia is putting on Ukraine also themselves. And so first and foremost, there has been a lot of solidarity on the ground. 
um, to help the refugees. But they are expecting more support, especially fiscal support from the European Union. And that is something that a lot of these countries have been pushing for. And so going forward, this is going to be a a concern as to how the resource allocation works um, for, for instance, unlocking the, the coronavirus recovery fund in order to support these countries that are dealing with these influxes of refugees. So... From your position on the on the ground there in Poland, is there a consensus as to how this might play out, uh, Aggie? It's quite difficult to say, but the thing I hear, especially from a lot of the people coming over the border, is that they are really hopeful for this to be a temporary issue. Pretty much everyone I speak to here has an intention to return to Ukraine at some point, and they do not want to settle completely in another country. They want to be able to return to their families. Also, because it is notable that so many of the people who left are women and children, and they've often been split up from the men in their family who have remained in Ukraine. So there is a concern for a lot of them that they hope that this is short-lived. But as the war goes into its second month, there are a lot of people now looking at what those next steps will be. All right, Aggie Kentrell, we appreciate uh, getting your thoughts and perspective. Aggie Kentrell, uh, she's a TV producer for Bloomberg News. She has been, she's based in Berlin, uh, she's, but she's been on that southeastern border of uh, Poland and Ukraine, and she's getting us some firsthand reporting about the refugee uh, situation and, um, as it continues day by day. And, and as she mentioned, going into the second month here, and I'm not sure anybody on either side thought that uh, it would uh, continue on here into its second month. But we will certainly continue our reporting, and we really thank Aggie for taking time out uh, to share some of her first-hand views of what's happening on the ground in that border of Poland and Ukraine. We've got a Federal Reserve which has pivoted noticeably to a more hawkish view. We're talking about potentially seven to eight rate hikes over the next uh, year, uh, perhaps 50 basis point rate hikes. What are assets to do here? What are risk assets to do in that type of environment? Let's check in with Randy Schwimmer, co-head of Senior Lending and a Senior Managing Director at Churchill Asset Management. Randy, it's been a while since these financial markets have had to deal with a significantly, um, an environment that has significant rate increases in the offing. How do you think about that? Yeah, and in fact, it's the kind of thing that expectations for the kind of moves that have happened and and the Fed actually embarked on last week have been growing. And now that, in fact, that uh, has been behind us, and in fact, if anything, uh, Fed Chair Powell has uh, doubled down a little bit and said, hey, don't worry if things, if inflation doesn't get tamed, we're prepared to go even 50 basis points her hike, uh, I think, has given investors some kind of path to uh, you know, less volatility in the sense that they know where this is headed. Now what's entered into the conversation has been, uh, gee, do these Fed rate hikes, could they potentially lead to a slowdown? And we're starting to see more observers coming out and starting to worry about that. Um, now, I still think that the signs, the economic signs that are around us you know, with housing starts and commercial and uh, manufacturing uh, production still being up solidly, expectations for this year for GDP still, you know, in that kind of mm. high twos, low threes range in a positive way, still is sending, I think, a very good growth message overall. 
to uh, to investors. So I don't think there's a chance of a recession anytime soon. But it is at least uh, giving certainly credit investors something to look at. But I do think that overall, uh, people are feeling now that the Fed's on a path, removed some uncertainty regarding uh, the direction, certainly, of rates and how many are going to be happening over the next year or two. Yeah. Um, and then we'll see how this unfolds. You know, Randy, it's interesting. I've heard a lot of commentary that Powell has been speaking a lot and, and talking about those big moves and the potential for maybe 50 basis points or moving faster than 25 to make sure that the equity markets are doing a lot of his job for him when it comes to some of those fight, uh, tightening financial conditions. How are you thinking about the messaging from this Federal Reserve? Well, and in fact, they've done a very good job, I think, of um, removing a lot of the doubt. Once the pivot began in November, when transitory was taken out of, the, uh, out of their, uh, their playbook, and it became obvious that this was a pretty serious issue that was not going away in terms of inflation, Ever since November, you know, four months ago, we now have seen a pretty consistent, solid messaging coming out from the Fed. And I do think if you look at uh, public equities as an example, have pretty much fully recovered values, um, you know, over, certainly over the last 30 days, as we saw um, following the Ukraine uh, invasion, uh, February 24th. Uh, so I think that generally markets have factored in uh, both the worst case scenario, at least we hope, um, for the Ukraine war, and then also to some extent where the ultimate end game is for the Fed, which they've advertised pretty much is going to end up at a kind of 2 to 3% uh, Fed funds rate, which would then match expected inflation. And I think we're seeing um, you know, some stability in all markets. We still have not seen new issue uh, deal flow return uh, to the high yield market. Uh, or the leverage loan market in a great extent, but at least things have calmed down certainly over the last several uh, days. Yeah, Randy, that, that's where I wanted to go. I want, I want to take advantage of your uh, experience in the leverage loan uh, business. Uh, you know, with rising interest rates, how do you think, you know, those private equity folks, which are such big consumers of, of leverage debt, leverage loans, how do you envision the M&A market over the next, say, 12 months? Are we going to see a, a pullback in activity, do you think? Well, we came off a huge uh, 2021, not just with Churchill, but also just, you know, with private equity deployment, private credit deployment. It was, uh, in many ways, probably an environment that would be hard to replicate for this year. We still think activity uh, and the M&A pipeline is going to be solid for this year. Certainly, the economy, we believe, will continue to be constructive for credit. It doesn't have to be toward growth in order for credit to be uh, to, to work. Um, and I think private equity, which has raised uh, so much money over the last, you know, three, four, five, seven years, um, that dry powder, which is going to be deployed, is going to be deployed um, in partnership with uh, direct lenders such as Churchill that have uh, worked with these private equity firms over many different types of markets and through volatility. Um, when the public markets were either sidelined or shut down, direct lenders such as ourselves had plenty of dry powder to help the dry powder uh, of our private equity clients be deployed. So if you go back upstream and look at where the M&A market is, we're seeing evidence of another solid year with a number of uh, M&A bankers who are uh, working on books uh, to be launched over the next 30 days. Hmm. Uh, the reports we get from them is it's going to be a very busy second quarter. 
And as long as the, the paths that we've just been talking about, geopolitical and interest rates, and to right. some extent inflation, which we think is going to get under control, and most economists believe it will as rates uh, continue to go up, as long as those things continue on a path, we think that 2022 is going to be poised for a really solid year from an right. M&A financing perspective. All right. Good stuff, Randy. Really appreciate you taking the time. Randy Schwimmer, co-head of Senior Lending and Senior Managing Director at Churchill Asset Management. One of the, I guess, the fallouts of the war in Ukraine is it's really highlighting the energy dependence that much of Europe, particularly Germany, has on Russia. And of course, that raises a question, I think, here on these shores is, how is the U.S. position in terms of its energy independence? Let's check in with Marianne Brown. She's a president of Southern California Gas Company. Uh, Marianne, give us a sense of, you know, I guess a lot of people are now probably thinking a little bit more about energy independence, uh, given what we're seeing in terms of the uncertainties and the disruptions in Europe. How do you think about that? Yeah, thanks so much for the question. So when we think about energy independence, especially these days, we think about meeting the twin goals of energy security and the clean energy transition and how best to meet that. And obviously, I think, and you're hearing it from a lot of your um, viewers, is it's about investing in diverse domestic resources and that those resources need to increasingly be renewable over time. And I think the important thing there is that gas, like um, like electricity, can be renewable. How do you make it reliable, though? I mean, we've talked a lot about the importance of the shift to renewables, but when some of those fail or we've done it in such a way where it's so fast that it isn't reliable, how do you make sure that that transition is smooth and also reliable as well? Yeah, you complement renewable electricity which can be intermittent, to your point, with renewable gases, which is what gives you that renewable and uh, that reliability and that resiliency. And that's why you're seeing this tremendous momentum globally and also nationally on hydrogen. You know, it is an energy-dense gas, but it's not a greenhouse gas, and it makes renewables from sun and wind available 24-7, 365 days a year. What role does hydrogen play, Miriam? Uh, we think it's an important growing part, important part of um, the mix that's going to help us to meet those twin goals around energy independence, energy security, and clean energy faster. Um, we see um, from our end that the costs are coming down really significantly. And what it does is it adds to energy diversity. And anytime you create a jump in the access to energy, you're going to have a positive impact on energy prices. And that's why, you know, our company has actually leaned in on hydrogen. And we announced a big project um, a few weeks ago, Angelus Link, on it. Can you talk to us about the specific challenges that California faces? In full disclosure, I'm from the Central Valley, and in the summer, we joke, we're politely asked to unplug our appliances because <laughs> it's 105 degrees and there's no energy and no one can afford an $800 electric bill when you're running the AC. So can you talk to us about the specific challenges that you're seeing in California, and particularly your Southern California? Yeah, absolutely. California is a, a, a bit of an island on energy, and so um, we deal with a tense dynamic on supply and demand. And to your point, I think that there is an increased focus about needing to bring more supply um, to customers and also manage demand with energy efficiency. And, 
California does have a good story to tell on um, on energy efficiency per capita, but I think you're seeing a lot of focus in the state on bringing increased supplies. Miriam, how about nuclear energy? How does that fit into the equation? I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from certain folks within that space that, you know, there's a lot of advances being made where you don't need, don't need to build these huge nuclear facilities that pose a significant risk. Maybe you can do it on a much smaller, more nimble scale. How do you think about nuclear? Yeah, nuclear, that's a complicated issue here in California, but I think it's com- a complicated issue federally because we have a waste management issue. So I think it's whether it's a solution today, maybe not, but can, is it going to be a part of the solution eventually? Maybe. And so I think that we're in a place to accomplish the goals that we have. We need all technologies on the table, and I would include that one. How are you thinking about the impacts from Russia's invasion of Ukraine? We've talked a lot about the gas market in Europe. You're taking a look at European gas prices already up 34% on the day as Putin had been looking to seek payment in rubles. Europe, though, feels distant, right, from the U.S. and from your Southern California. But what do you see as the impacts, if any, um, already here on this market? I think the lesson of the last several weeks really is urgency. There was already a trend, and you heard about it at Sierra Week two weeks ago on the drive for energy security and clean energy transition, and I think that the experience from from what's going on in Europe and Ukraine um, really has put an urgency because I think, you know, this won't be the last cold winter and it won't be the last hot summer that we just had and it won't be the last geopolitical event that we have. History may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. So we need to learn from this and um, accelerate our investments um, towards towards energy security and the clean energy transition. And Miriam, just uh, quickly here, climate change. Boy, I, you just see coming out of the great state of California, if it's not a wildfire, it's a mudslide, it's an earthquake. How does climate change factor into how you kind of think about your forecasting going forward? Climate policy is um, really needs to be a factor in investment decisions, and managing climate risk is definitely part of our investment decisions. And part of that is future-proofing our existing infrastructure, and we've got a significant amount of it. We're the largest gas utility in the country. Um, and another part of it is new infrastructure. So um, the announcement of the um, large green hydrogen uh, project that we announced, Angelus Link, that's part of it, and it's also as we modernize our infrastructure, um, that we look to make it resilient to be able to adapt to changing climate and externalities. All right. Marion Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Marion Brown, president of Southern California Gas Company. All right, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about recession hedges. We've been hearing a lot more, I think, over the last couple of weeks, people talking about recession as a result of this Federal Reserve action, then that might be a risk. And a lot of folks are saying, where do I go for some hedges? Uh, Is there any place in the commodity complex that I can go for some hedges on a recession? Let's bring in Mike McGlone, Senior Commodity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, if, if I'm looking for a recession hedge, is there anything in your world of commodities that I should be looking at? 
Yes, Paul. I, I think the first target should be gold, because I think gold right now is almost entirely dependent on if the stock market goes down and if the Fed jawboning works and if yields and bond yields start declining from these levels. To me, that, w- that would be the impetus for gold to just break out, because it's so ready. It's really technically it looks strong, fundamentally looks strong, but it has a major headwind right now. Fed's tightening, stock market's going up. You know, higher rates, higher yields. If the stock market finally rolls over, gold should be the best place to be in place that, you know, to really for a recession, I think gold would be the best hedge. Because if we get a normal recession, almost all commodities should collapse. And that's the problem. Crude oil right now is almost on the screen. is almost triple the U.S. cost of production, which is part of that boom that we think we're going to have in commodity production in, in North America. Talk to us more about that. I mean, I'm taking a look at crude at $115 a barrel, and what, it was two weeks ago when we were looking at 135 on some of the futures over on that big Sunday night movement, I remember that we saw, and then there was a little bit of a relief as we br- briefly dipped below 100. But wow, I mean, looking again back at 115, what is that telling you? Yeah, it, it's telling me that uh, we're more likely to have demand destruction now, because that's, if history is a guide, the significance of this rally is it's the first one that's ever happened in, in crude oil futures with North America net energy crude oil liquid fuel exporter, massive exporter. So the most similar recent example was 2008. Crude oil got to 145, the all-time high, and then collapsed 80%. The most recent example before that was 1990. It went from 20 to 40 and then back to 20. That high it put and then took 14 years to take out. To me, we're at similar risk now because this demand destruction is significant in virtually all that supply that people are saying is going to leave the market from Russia is going to China. It virtually, and China's demand has actually been declining. So to me, that's a key thing. And then one thing I'll leave you with, if you look on the forward curve, mm. one year from now, crude oil is trading around $90 a barrel. That's been the significant mm. resistance on the curve for about 14 years. And the high in the forward curve is still around 140 So market's price for the short-term pain right now, longer-term supply comes Can back I- on. And, and the demand just goes backwards. Goes Talk to me, though, about the differences in demand destruction, because I hear that if it's from a demand shock, then that number is lower. But if it's a supply shock to where we are now, demand destruction may not be until we get up to 150 a barrel. Is there a difference in how you look at demand destruction based on what the shock is and where that shock is coming from. Yeah, well, there's a fog of war here. <laughs> so this is the most significant event of our lifetimes, and I've been around for almost six decades. This does, this, compared to the Gulf War in, in 1990, to me, this is nothing what Russia's doing. And the destruction, I think the key thing to remember is the psychological impact of everybody in the world reading this on the tape. It's not going to increase consumer spending. It's going to do the opposite. And then there's a price factor. But the key thing to remember is short term, we just got the most stretched above, you know, far five-year or four-year mean in crude oil ever, yet the market didn't make a new high. And why is that? Because it's a different world now. So it's really hard to quantify it exactly here, but I have to use my tools and say, sure, from these levels, you can make a new high. But if you look at the history of lessons, maybe we get to 150. The enduring result is we go back to 50 and stay there for 10 years, which is where we have been. 50 has been basically the average since the collapse in 2014, and still it's well above the U.S. cost of production. But here's the big difference. It's the dichotomy between North America America really doing well as a net commodity exporter in Europe and rest of the world getting hurt really bad with recession and being net commodity importers. Mike, here's the the dumb question of the day. Can the world exist without Russian oil? And most notably, can Europe exist without Russian oil? 
Well, that's the cool, the significant thing about this, Paul. We look back this from from the future. We're going to see they're fighting a 20th century war with fossil fuels, and the world's focusing on a 21st century war, economic and moving forward in ways. So let's look at this. Peak energy consumption or liquid fuel consumption in the U.S. occurred about four or five years ago, and it's been in decline. And that's even before EVs. It's just embracing advancing technology. So once we get past this horrible period of destruction, the markets, the world's going to say, okay, there's a better way. We're going to select this this process of renewables. And it's already started before. So I own an EV for a reason, but that's also going to ramp up when the most significant key tool retoolings of the entire we've ever seen is that the whole manufacturing process in automobiles switching to EVs. That's going to just accelerate. But in the meantime, we're probably going to have to have a recession. And yes, Russia, we can do without their energy. The problem is the fertilizer. That's what's going to really hurt uh, yields. And that's going to be a really boom for the corn bill. All right, Mike McGlone giving us the lowdown on commodities, as he always does. Mike McGlone, Senior Commodity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He is based in Miami Beach, Florida, which is a scam in and of itself, and I will get to the bottom of it at some point. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.